Judges 3, beginning at verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it says once again, because at the beginning of the telling about Othniel, it says the Israelites also did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, or judge, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, and now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Left-handed man, right thigh, right? That's how he'd take that out. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, shh, quiet. And all his attendants left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. And as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. And then Ehud went out to the porch, he shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. And they said, uh, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them, and there they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. And so they followed him down and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. Unexpected strategies in dark ages. 
Life is full of the unexpected um, from so many big things that have happened through the course of history that we might think of and come to mind to also smaller things in our own lives. Like, could you ever have guessed that you'd be where you are in your life today? Could you ever have guessed that life would unfold as it has? Both the blessings uh, and also the hard things. I doubt when Chris and Mindy got married that uh, they could have ever expected that they'd be up front here at Faith uh, with a son named Andrew and, and a daughter, Elena, and now with baby Nora. When Sarah and I started our life together, we never would have guessed that we'd have four daughters. We never would have guessed that we would have been called and blessed to serve in faith church. This passage teaches us about the unexpected and especially how God uses unexpected strategies in relation to his people and in relation to how he saves us. First of all, this morning, God uses flawed people. And that's unexpected. It seems to be a new idea that the book of Judges is making sure we get, because that first judge from last week, Othniel, was more someone we'd expect God to choose to give leadership to his people. There's nothing really negative or questionable said about Othniel. He was from, you know, there were these 12 tribes. He was from the tribe of Judah, which was also considered and called the royal tribe. That was the tribe we read at the beginning of the book that God called to lead the way in this mop-up operation in the promised land of Canaan. He had the right pedigree for a leader. His uncle was Caleb, who was uh, famous for being courageous in faith. Unlike the other 10 guys who spied out the land originally, you remember Caleb and Joshua said, we can take this land. We've got God on our side. So he was, that pedigree was important. He was a fam- of a family of faith. And also, Othniel was already a war hero. Uh, before he became a judge, uh, we read how he captured Kiriath Sefer, and in doing so, won Caleb's daughter, Aksa, as a result. If you're thinking about those connections, yeah, they were cousins. That's, that's how they rolled in those days. Othniel's name means lion of God, for crying out loud. Of course God would use a guy like that. And and so he was a a typical, obvious leader. You think of maybe Captain John Miller, Tom Hanks' character in Saving Private Ryan, or Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings. Courageous, virtuous, righteous. And then with Ehud... And Shamgar, too, it's like God is saying, but I want you to know that I don't always work 
only with the people that you'd expect. And our response to that should be, praise the Lord that God doesn't only work with people we'd expect. Because we're not perfect. We've got flaws. If God only worked with typical, obvious, virtuous, strong people, so many of us would not have a place in the kingdom, would we? We'd be overlooked uh, because, because some of us, a lot of us, we've, we've got issues. We've got lingering sin. We've got rough edges. We don't have the perfect qualifications for all that God calls us to in our lives of faith, in the church. And sometimes we feel that inadequacy of serving the Lord in, in relation to the Lord very intently. But thankfully, we see throughout the Bible how God can use crooked sticks. Jacob, the deceiver, that hothead Peter, Rahab, who used to be a prostitute, Abraham, and a number of others we can think of who God used in even quite old age. Moses, who seems to have had a speech impediment. Martha, that worrywart, a Samaritan woman who was divorced. Here, in comparison with the war hero Othniel, we have Ehud and Shamgar. After time of peace, after Othniel, we read that Israel rejected the Lord again, and God sent a different enemy to test them, to wake them up, Eglon, the king of Moab, and the Moabites joined forces with two other armies to attack Israel. Eglon set up a temporary palace in the city of Palms. Anybody know what the city of Palms is? Jericho. I think I heard it. Jericho was, is an ironic place for this enemy, for God to let this enemy set up temporary rule over Israel because that was the very first city that God miraculously gave his people in Joshua's day. And now it's taken from them. And the Israelites are subject to the Moabites for 18 years, we read. The Israelites eventually woke up and asked God to save them. And of course, God does that when we call out to him. And the deliverer he gave them was Ehud. It's noted that he was left-handed. The literal word in the Bible for that is he was unable to use his right hand. So it's possible that Ehud's right arm or hand was paralyzed or deformed, unusable. So it could mean that, but not necessarily. It could just mean that he was left-handed. And the reality is that back in that day, Just that would have been considered a handicap of some kind. And that plays into the story as it goes on. That's why the palace guard and Eglon really didn't suspect anything of Ehud. A left-handed guy? Clearly, this is no soldier. He couldn't possibly harm a fly. You know, that's why they didn't expect him being alone with Eglon to be a problem. The right hand that most people used, and about 90% of the population, you know, are right-handed. 
And, and that's always, that's, that was considered in Bible times as a symbol of power, right? And that's why Jesus is described as, after he ascended into heaven, being seated on the right hand of God. And, and today we even talk about um, so-and-so is my right-hand man, which, if you think about it, that's really a knock on people who are left-handed. I don't know if a little while back... Um, how many people, just out of curiosity, how many people are left-handed here? All right. They say it's, it's about 10% of the population, and that roughly looks right. Uh, have you ever heard of the book, The Left-Hander Syndrome? My dad is left-handed, and uh, he ate that book up. He told us all about it, trying to convince us how left-handed people are really a persecuted minority. That's a little strong, but if you're not left-handed, if you're right-handed, you might not realize how much the world is geared for right-handers. If you think about it, golf courses are designed for righties, scissors, old-time school desks, notebooks, zippers on pants, buttons on shirts, and the list goes on. Students here, I've got a... um, a word that might be new to you that you could use in your next English paper related to all this, and I think it would really impress your teacher, the word gaucherie, G-A-U-C-H-E-R-I-E, gaucherie. It means lack of social grace, it means awkwardness, and it's from the French, if you know French, à gauche, which means left, or to the left. Um, and in this world designed for right-handed people, statistics show that left-handed people die on average nine years earlier than right-handed people. However, it's not all bad news. It's also true that many left-handed people have become leaders and had great success in their respective fields, really beyond what you'd expect from 10% of the population. Presidents Reagan, Bush Sr., Clinton, and Obama were all left-handed. Other well-known left-handed people are Babe Ruth, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, Oprah Winfrey, Jerry Seinfeld, Julia Roberts, Justin Bieber, uh, Tom Cruise, Emma Thompson, Paul McCartney, Leonardo da Vinci, Aristotle, and of course, lefty pitchers in baseball are a hot commodity. Something else about left-handed people is that many of them, and this is a real thing, many of them tend to have a, a special, exceptional skill or two. In that day, being left-handed would have been considered a flaw for Ehud. Shamgar's flaw, we see more from his name, son of Anath. And you have to be careful how you say that if you ever want to pronounce, talk about Shamgar, son of Anath. This indicates that son of Anath, that he was a foreigner. He was not an Israelite. So how unexpected is that? The nation of Israel at that time basically coincided, right, in the Old Testament times with God's people. In other words, they were the Old Testament church, and God used someone outside of his people, outside of his church, really, to save his people. 
But again, none of this should surprise us if we look at our own selves, if we look around us at those God uses in the church and for his kingdom. I want to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 26. This is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Brothers, speaking to the church, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And so all of this using weak things, using people with flaws, it's to highlight for us just how great our God is. It's to show us that God is a God of grace, not works. He often takes and uses people who are unexpected, maybe even from the margins of society, to show that salvation is not and couldn't possibly be from any of us, but it's from Him. It's not from our own human ability so that none of us might boast as we read, but instead so that any boasting is in our God and for our God so that he receives the glory. One of the the more immediate applications I think of is this seems to me to say something about how we treat one another. We look at ourselves and we think of all our flaws, all our issues, and how if God uses each one of us despite those issues, could we be more gracious in understanding of the flaws that we see in those around us? Could we have a little more patience and grace with people, you think? I think so, in many cases. I also think about Ehud very likely being seen as a disabled person, yet God used him. And in fact, he had some very special gifts. Um, He had quite the mind, as we're going to see as we look through his plan. Uh, But those special gifts, that's true of people we know who, who have what the world calls disabilities or handicaps. We treat them with the same respect and love and grace as all other image bearers of God. And there are no doubt any number of very special and unique gifts present to be used for God's glory in the church and in the world to shine his light. And sometimes close family members get this, uh, but the, the rest of us can miss out on the amazing blessing that each one is to God and to others. If God only used the Othniels, boy, That would be super discouraging for all of us, but instead we can be encouraged because he shows us clearly in his word that he uses people with flaws for his salvation purposes to bless his church, to bless the world, society, right? I mean, look around. He's using you and me. He's using us. We aren't perfect. We've got warts, but he uses us 
It's so incredible. The unexpected strategies of God in dark ages. Not only does God use people with flaws, but he also, secondly this morning, uses unconventional means. In the account of Ehud, we read that he joined this group of people going to bring tribute, taxes, to Eglon, the king that conquered them. Probably a portion of the people's crops or maybe some herds and flocks and the animals. Uh, Now, we know, because we read it earlier in the text before that, that the people are going to be delivered. But how? Well, what we might expect is that Ehud would join this group to Eglon, bring a horn along, blow the horn, gather an army, storm the palace. After all, Israel never rebuilt those walls of Jericho where he had made his seat of power. But something really different happens. Ehud hatches this very detailed plan, and and this is really just, there's sort of this colorful, uh, comical telling of how the plan unfolds. It's very visual. You can almost picture the whole scene um, in, in like, uh, like a short graphic novel or something. It's that visual. This is the, how the plan goes forward. Ehud, first of all, crafts a special dagger, double-edged, which would mean he could do, oh, he uses the left hand, uh, a straight stab rather than having to hack at the king. Ehud put it on his right hip, the opposite of what was normal for fighters, Then they do the tribute mission. They give him the tribute. Nothing happens there. They leave. And at a certain point, Ehud goes back alone to the palace. And we're told in the meantime that Eglon is a very large man. Rotund, we'll say. And that proves important later. Third part to the plan, Ehud arranges for a private audience with Eglon in the throne room by saying he has a secret message for the king. Eglon is sort of not presented as uh, the brightest of light bulbs. But then, you know, how, again, like I said, how could a left-handed person be a threat? You wouldn't have expected that. Eglon says, quiet, and that was taken as a signal for the attendants to leave the room. The next part of the plan, the fourth part, is getting the king in a vulnerable position. And so Ehud gets comes up very close to the king. And now, it's not just a secret message, it's a message from God. Curious, Eglon rises in all of his glory (laughs) to hear, and that's when Ehud delivers that fatal stab. Finally, Ehud shuts the door, locks it, gives himself, giving him time to get away, and then he leaves through a different exit. The palace guard, um, they wait a while, wondering what's going on. They don't dare unlock the door, and it's because they think the king is relieving himself. And the fact is, the, the smell that would come from the death would probably waft through the doors and be a similar smell to someone relieving themselves. So that's probably why they thought that. 
With the Moabites' king dead, the soldiers are disoriented, and Ehud leads the battle against their army, and they win decisively with the power of God. Moab now Moab becomes subject to Israel, peace for 80 years. That's a lot of details from Ehud. In just the little bit of detail we get from Shamgar, we see the unexpected strategy and the unexpected means because he strikes down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Not a sword, not a dagger, not a double-sided dagger, not a bow and arrow. This was a farming tool. It's like an eight-foot-long pole with a pointy end one pointy end uh, to direct oxen, to direct cattle, sometimes used to pick dirt off a plow that would get dirt get jammed up in there as they're plowing the fields. So that's the unconventional means um, for Shamgar, a farming tool to kill 600 men. As we think about this, you know, God continues to use unconventional means today to accomplish his purposes. Instead of uh, power, revenge, wealth, all tools of this world, uh, the gospel is humility, grace, love, forgiveness. In New Testament times, after Jesus' coming, we're told that our sword is the sword of the Spirit, which is God's Word. Our helmet is salvation. Our shield against the flaming arrows of the evil one is faith. Our breastplate protecting our torso is righteousness. And that's, of course, not our own righteousness, but Christ's applied to us. Talking about Christ's righteousness talk about an unexpected strategy and unconventional means. Jesus Christ, God's ultimate deliverer, he was born in a stable. You know what a stable is, right? It's a barn. Jesus was literally born in a barn. We joke about that. Oh, the person sloppy is born in the barn. Jesus literally was. We read in Isaiah 53 that when he came, he had nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. But Jesus did not use trickery like Ehud or have any of the other flaws that every other human being does have. And he achieved the victory for us. How? Through the cross, unexpectedly, through a crushing defeat, not a great triumph. By his death, by being nailed to a tree, this all, this unexpected means of salvation that God used is what the world calls folly. The world looks at this and says it's foolishness. We're called, though, not to make the fatal mistake that Eglon made by looking at Ehud and esteeming him not. He didn't respect him, but instead we're called, 
each one of us to look at Jesus today and see the power and the wisdom of God. There's one final piece to all of this. God uses flawed people with unconventional means for dependable outcomes. Dependable outcomes. In Ehud's day, in Shamgar's day, God saved Israel. He won the battle. Because of the victory that would be achieved by Jesus on the cross and his resurrection three days later, that winning of the battle will always be the case. And God is dependable even in and especially in your own dark ages in your life, your own dark and hard times. He always comes through in the end. While our lives are filled with the unexpected all the time, our God is always dependable. We don't know the details of baby Nora's path as life goes on, but we know she and her family are always going to be able to depend on the promises of God that we heard today in baptism. Some people, and maybe you know people like this, uh, their presence, their help, their advice in your life can be hit or miss. They're just not dependable. All talk, maybe. But with God, it's never hit or miss. He has accomplished salvation for his people. We read in verse 29, not a man escaped. When God delivers, he delivers. God always comes through. And at the end of the day, uh, we read in the book of Job that Christ the Lord will stand over the earth and even when our skin has been destroyed, whether it's by a death by cancer or another unexpected death or death in older age, at the end of the day, the Bible says, even when our skin has been destroyed, we will see God. We are victors when we but follow the Lord. That's a sure thing. The path that will take us to that victory won't be what we expect, but we can expect that our God is 100% reliable, absolutely dependable. Amen. Oh Lord, we ask that you would bless us in our lives. We're so thankful, um, we're, we're humbly grateful uh, that, that you use us um, despite our weakness. You don't wait until we get to heaven and have been, been made perfect by you uh, to use your people. Um, we're so thankful that you, you can use us. That's humbling. And it also helps us, Lord, to, to depend on you. Help us to, to turn to Jesus. Help us to use uh, your unexpected ways uh, n instead of what the world thinks of as wisdom. We pray this in your name. Amen.